The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. I heard about this opportunity from my friends to work at this summer camp called Canacuck. And it sounded like a good opportunity, so I went and applied for the position. They had people, representatives that went to different colleges and, and had interviews and I got the job, and so I went off to camp to work as a counselor. And this uh, camp, Canacuck, was a major operation. It didn't just have one camp or two camps. It had nine different camps. And it employed almost 2,000 people to be counselors. And so I was assigned to K2, one of the camps down in the Branson area. And I remember pulling up and getting out of my car. And as I was unloading my items to take into the cabin, I saw this older gentleman in a white t-shirt. It was dirty and he was bending down and picking up weeds. And I didn't think much of it at the time. And I continued to unload my bags into the cabin and got lunch and things of that sorts. And then we got to orientation. And at orientation, this man in this dirty white t-shirt named Joe stands up. And I find out that Joe is the director of this camp, K2. But he's not only the director of this camp, he's actually the director of all the camps. And he's not only the director of all the camps, he actually owns all the camps. That he is over this entire operation. Well, needless to say, my demeanor towards him changed very quickly. I now looked up to the guy in a way I didn't before. There was a reverence towards him because of his position. But there's also a respect for him because of the humility that I saw in him. And so my demeanor towards him changed. I remember one time I was working at the camp and for some reason I was able to drive a four-wheeler, which didn't happen often. And I was driving the four-wheeler through camp and I came through the main part of the intersection right in front of the dining hall. And I was going a little too, I was sinning. I was going too fast, like driving too fast, coming through there, speeding through because I was having fun. And I remember this voice, Danny! And I, uh uh-oh, and I looked over, and there's Joe. And so I stop, and Joe walks over to me, says, Danny, don't you think you're going a little too fast, son? Now, I didn't say, please don't call me Danny, right? You cannot call me Danny, just so you know. (laughs) That's reserved for mom and dad, begrudgingly. But I said, Yes, sir. You're right, sir. Okay, sir. That's right, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I'll never do it again, sir. You see, when I understood his position, when I also understood his character and his humility, it changed the way that I acted towards him and around him. Today, we're going to see how we should act as a result of who we learned Christ to be last week. If you would, please open up to Philippians chapter 2. Verses 12 through 16 will be in. It's page 981 in the Red Bible. It's page 1453 in the Children's Bible. The passage just prior to this, the passage that we covered last week, we saw this accurate, true, and awesome picture of who Jesus is. In verses 6 through 8, we saw the humility, the voluntary humility of Jesus Christ. That he who is God over all of creation became created in the form of a human being. 
that Jesus, who is Lord God over all, master over all things, came to be a servant, to be a slave. And that he who is life became death on our behalf, even death on a shameful, wretched, miserable cross. And because of his humiliation, he was exalted. Do you remember the pervasiveness of Christ's exaltation? Let me read it to you again. And remember the word every that that Paul recites over and over and over again. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is an awesome picture that we get of our Savior, of his humiliation and his exaltation. And if this is true, if it is true that God humbled himself enough to become a man, to serve humanity, and to die on our behalf at the cross, if all of this is true, how shall we live today? What difference will that make on this afternoon or this week? What difference would this make on our life? Is it just something to be understood intellectually and appreciated? Or is this supposed to transform into our daily actions? Well, how this should impact us is what Philippians 2 verse 12 through 18 tells us. And so let's read together Philippians 2 verse 12 through 18. And this is in view of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Philippians 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that so many times we know in our heads, but don't practice what our, with our lives what we know to be true. That you are sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things, receiving the worship that you are due. And that is your position for all eternity, God. Lord, pray today, tomorrow, the next day, that those truths, those realities would transform our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus right now at this moment? Well, throughout Scripture, we read that Jesus raised from the dead, and then he ascended bodily into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. In this place, at the right hand of the Father, is a place of prominence in a place of power. It's confirmed in Acts 5.31 that said God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior. 
And so how does the reality of Christ's exaltation and his sitting at the right hand of the Father affect you on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and every day of the week? Well, today we see how it should affect us. And we're going to look at three things that Paul points out here. That in the shadow of the glory of Christ, we should work out, we should stop whining, and we should hold fast. And so we're going to cover those things. Work out, stop whining, and hold fast. First, work out. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul writes, therefore, in view of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but as much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This term, work out, means a continuous, sustained, strenuous effort until completion. And so Paul says that we should continually, strenuously, constantly work out our salvation. Now, for many of us who are familiar with Scripture, this verse might seem confusing or it might even seem heretical at first. The uniqueness of Christianity is that it is a religion of grace. That we are not saved by our good works, that we don't gain salvation by the good things we do, but that we are saved by grace alone. Paul, in another one of his letters in Ephesians chapter 2, explains that we are saved by grace alone and not by our own works. He says in Ephesians 2.8, he says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And then he overemphasizes it, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And so we are saved by grace and by grace alone, through faith, trusting in Christ for our salvation. And so what does Paul mean that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, he goes on in that Ephesians passage and tells us the right understanding of good works. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Understanding good works is very important. And what we need to know is this, is that we are not saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works. We're not saved by the good work we do, verses 8 and 9 talks about that, but we are saved unto to do the good works that we were created to do. And so when Paul says, to Christians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not saying work towards your salvation, that you can earn it, but work it out because you have been given the grace to do so. And so he's saying work out your salvation from fear. Work out your salvation from anger. Work out your salvation from self-pity. Work out, work out your salvation from whatever sin besets you. Work that salvation out because you have been saved. I think another helpful way in understanding what Paul is communicating here is through some big theological words, justification and sanctification. Justification, is simply put, is being declared righteous before God. All who trust in Jesus for their salvation are declared legally to be innocent before a holy God, not by their own goodness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to them and their sinfulness imputed to Jesus, who paid for it on the cross. 
And so justification is a one-time act in which the believer is declared righteous. Now, sanctification is the process of becoming righteous before God. It's the process of becoming who we have already been declared. And so if you trust in Christ, you have been declared righteous and innocent and pure and holy before an amazing God. And what sanctification is, is sanctification is the process of becoming who you have already been declared. But it's even more than that. Sanctification is the process of becoming fully human. You see, when God created man in his own image, he was holy and he was happy. But sin marred the image of God and man, and it made us sad. It made us grumpy. It made us desperate. And so as we pursue holiness, we're actually pursuing what it means to be fully human as God had created us to be. And this is so important to understand because so many times in our battle against sin, we're thinking, you know what? Pursuing holiness feels so foreign to me. But the reality is, is you are just pursuing who you were made to be, who God has declared you to be. And so in some ways, the scripture just calls us to be yourself, to be who you are in Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds easy. Just be who you are in Jesus. But we all know very practically that it is very hard to do. Sanctification is hard work. You don't just take a pill and the next day wake up and have the heart of Jesus. You don't just float or drift into holy living. Putting to death your evil thoughts your evil desires, your evil actions, your evil words, putting those things to death is hard work. It is far easier to take the wide path and continue in sin than to pursue through the narrow path of righteousness. You know, I've gotten to work with several folks that struggle with alcoholism. And it's interesting because in the first step, they have to acknowledge that they have no power over this sin in their life. And it's absolutely true. But the funny thing is there's 11 more steps and it is hard work to pursue holiness. No matter what your struggle is, whether it's alcohol or something else, it is hard work. And so if you are here today and you are struggling with your sin, praise be to God. You see, as your pastor, I am far more concerned about the people who do not struggle with sin. Because if you do not struggle with sin, then that means you have either minimized your sin or you have justified your sin or you have completely given into your sin. We are called to struggle with sin, to fight against sin. And that is hard work. And so there are many things that Satan might whisper in our ears. He might say, you know what, your sin is not that big of a deal. You can stop at any time if you really wanted to. There's no need to tell anyone else about this. You can handle it on your own. He, he encourages us to manage our sin and to mask our sin. But if we are serious about putting sin to death in our life and working out our salvation, we have to remember that God has given us the grace to do that. He has given us his church. He's given us people that we can trust with our lives. 
And so is there anyone in your life that you can be open with, that you can be honest with? Not with everybody, but is there someone that you are entrusting yourself to, that you're saying, if there are blind spots in me, please point them out. Is there anyone that is helping you to be accountable to the sin you're trying to put to death in your life? Working out your salvation is hard work. The verse continues. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible, this great study Bible, comments on this thought. It says that fear and trembling refers to awe and reverence rather than panic and alarm. And so fear and trembling refers to awe and reverence rather than panic and alarm. And it says such emotions are essential to the Christian life. In Hebrews chapter 12 we are encouraged at the very beginning to lay aside every sin that we so easily entangles us. And then it goes on in Hebrews 12 to tell us about God as our Heavenly Father. And it tells us that God is our Heavenly Father and that He loves us. And because He loves us, He is going to discipline us when we take on self-destructive habits. You know, I remember the first time I saw a Christian family discipline their child. It was something far different than I saw growing up. My parents weren't bad with disciplining me, but it was just, it was different. And I remember it was after college and I was going to this retreat to this house and, and there was a couple of us there and then the family was there and, and the mom was in the other room talking with the kids, something about the TV. And the child kept disobeying, kept disobeying, started to cry. And finally the mom brought the child, Will, into the dining room and told her husband, you need to do something about this. And so he took his son, Will, out of the room so he wouldn't embarrass him, but we could still hear. <laughs> he took him out of the room, and he sat down with them, and he said, Will, do you know what you did, buddy? And they talked through what he did. And then his daddy said, I need to discipline you for this. And so he spanked his child. He didn't, not overly harsh, but he spanked his child. And his child sat there and cried, and he held his child in his arms, and he told him how much he loved him. And how much he cared for him. You see, that father, because he loved his child, wanted his child to fear him. Not as judge, not as someone who might abandon his child. That was never on the table. But to fear him as dad. To fear his fatherly, loving discipline. You see, all of us are called to fear God. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you are here and you do not trust in Christ for your salvation, you are to fear God as judge. Because he will judge you according to your works in this life for all eternity. And it will not be glorious. But if you're here today and you trust in Christ for your salvation, just as the Philippians who Paul was writing to, we are called to fear God. Not as judge, but as father. A father who loves us enough that he would dare to discipline us. And so we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Next verse, verse 14. Not only are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but we are also to stop whining. That's my word, not the Bible's word. It says like this, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I love this verse because it's almost a verse you don't have to preach. Like people just go, oh, you know, I'm, at least I do. <laughs> In writing this, Paul is actually echoing 
some Old Testament language that described the Israelites. If you remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And the Lord delivered them by sending the 10 plagues. And then he brings them to the Red Sea and he parts the Red Sea and he brings them through the Red Sea and crashes it over the Egyptian army to set them free. And they're wandering through the wilderness towards the promised land. You would think this would be a joyful and happy people. But their demeanor is characterized by grumbling time and time again. They grumble about the food. They grumble about the water. They grumble about the plan. And in that context, we see how God feels about grumbling. You can read along with me on the screen. Numbers 14, verse 26 through 30. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Now listen closely. This is God's response to the grumbling of the Israelites. Your dead body shall fall in the wilderness. And of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. We see God's heart towards grumbling. His response is to kill everyone 20 years and older over the course of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, why does God hate grumbling so much? Well, you see, grumbling reveals what we worship. Grumbling reveals what we most cherish. You see, when what we cherish is being kept from us, that's when we grumble. And so, for example, for the Israelites, they really wanted meat. And so they said to Moses, we should just go back to Egypt, become slaves again, so that we can have meat in our stew and we will die there. That is far better to have meat than to be free and go into the promised land. And so they grumbled because they wanted meat more than they wanted the will of God. And so as I looked at this passage and I thought in my own life, where do I grumble? I, there are many occasions I could, have, I could have picked, but one that stuck out to me more recently is that sometimes out loud, but more in my heart, I grumble about how much there is to do just around the house. It's like every time I walk into a room, I can see 10 things that I have to do. Anyone ever feel that way? And, and so, sometimes I vocalize to my wife, I just feel so overwhelmed. There's so much to do around the house, and yet I want to be good to my kids. And so I come home, I play with the kids, and then at night I'm too tired to do this. And so there's just one day to do it. And so I start to grumble in my heart. We actually say, if, if there's something else that pops up, we just say, add it to the list. Why do I grumble? Well, it's because what I cherish is being withheld from me. What I cherish is a perfectly up-to-date house. What I cherish is a perfectly organized and clean house. What I cherish is a house in such order that I can just rest. And when those things are kept from me, my heart grumbles. And so let's get personal with you. When do you tend to grumble? What causes you to grumble? What causes you? 
Maybe it's changing diapers. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe paying taxes or your marital status. Maybe it has something to do with the government or Obamacare. What is it that makes your heart grumble? You see, all of those things that I want for my house, wanting it to be clean and organized and up to date, those aren't bad things. But when it makes my heart grumble, it makes me realize that I haven't elevated them to ultimate things. And when I'm instructed from those, I grumble. And so what makes you grumble? And what does that reveal about what you cherish most in life? Let me just take kids for an instance, because I know this is probably more apparent to many of us, for teenagers and even younger. Do you grumble when your parents ask you to do something? Not, not something unbiblical, but do they ask you to please clean your room or clean this area or clean this? Or, or do you grumble about the chores that you have? Why would you grumble about those things? Well, because they're attacking what you cherish most, whether it be control, right? They won't tell me what time to come home. I'll come home when I want to. Or because it attacks your cherishing of being lazy and doing nothing. See, this is a struggle for all of us. And so God hates grumbling because it means we have elevated something above him and we have started to worship it. Now, Paul gives us motivation for not grumbling as well, if that wasn't enough. If you look in the verse prior, in verse 13, we read that God works in you both to will and work according to his good pleasure. And so the reason why we need not grumble about our job or grumble about our house or grumble about our income is because it is all a part of God's good plan for his pleasure. Did you know that God has sovereignly ordained what your paycheck will be even down to the very penny? And all of it is according to his good pleasure, according to his good plan. And so our motivation is knowing that God is sovereign over all things. We also see an encouragement in verse 15. It says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our world is saturated with complaining. If you turn on talk radio, any type of talk radio, whether it be political talk radio or whether it be sports talk radio, listen to how much grumbling you hear. It's pervasive. When I was a substitute teacher, I would go into the teacher's lounge and I was amazed at how much grumbling there was over the kids. Like it just surprised. I thought they were all like super saints or something, but there was grumbling. You don't have to go far to see grumbling. You probably don't even have to go outside your own house to see that grumbling is very pervasive. And so when we elevate Christ above all things, so that when they are withheld from us, it does not lead to grumbling, we shine like stars. We show who we are in Christ. We show that we are blameless and innocent in Jesus Christ. We show that we are children, beloved children of God. And this shines brightly to a cynical and complaining world. And so we are called to do all things without grumbling in disputing. And so first we are to work hard and then we are to stop whining. And finally, in the shadow of Christ's glory, we are to hold fast. Verse, let's start at the end of verse 15 because it flows into verse 16 as well. It says, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be poured proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. 
this term holding fast means to fix your gaze upon something. And so it's used in the book of Acts when, when Peter and John come up to this lame man. And it says that he fixed his attention, same word, on Peter and John expecting something from them. This term's used in 1 Timothy 4.16 in, in much the same way that it's used here. It says, keep a close watch. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And so it means to be captivated by the word of life, by the word of God, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just as a new mother is captivated with her child and studies her child. Or as a Packer fan is captivated with the TV when it's the fourth quarter and there's only six seconds to go. We're to be captivated with the word of God. This term hold fast also means to stand firm. And so we're captivated by the word of God and we stand firm on the word of God. Not being swayed by every wind of doctrine that comes here and there. And as we do this. As we hold fast to the word of life, we shine as lights in the world. John Piper gave an illustration that I thought was very helpful for me on this passage. Have you ever had one of those oil lamps, those old oil lamps? And there's the base and you fill it with oil and then you have this wick and you put it in there. And it's kind of amazing how it works, actually. But if you take the wick out and you hold it, with your hand or a pair of pliers, and you try to light it, not much will happen. You will kind of singe the edges, but it won't burn. But if you take that wick and you put it into the oil, and it will soak up the oil, it will absorb the oil, and you light it, it lights. And it stays lit because it is absorbing that oil. We are called to absorb the word of God deep within us that we might shine in this world that is dark, that people might see the love of Christ through us as we work hard to work out our salvation, as we cease from complaining and grumbling, and as we hold tight to the word of God, we are to shine in the world as lights of God. We as God's church are called to be the ones that shine. We are God's plan A for the world. And there is no plan B. We're called to be God's messengers, God's light in this dark world. Let me end with this. As we live in the glory of Christ, we're called again to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to not grumble, but be grateful and thankful and trusting in God's sovereignty. And we're called to hold on tight to the word of God that we might shine like stars in this world. And all of this, as we said earlier, is very hard work. This is probably the hardest work you will ever do in your life. And so how do we muster the strength to live for God's glory? How do we muster the strength to carry these things out, to not grumble, to not complain, to hold fast to the word of God, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? How do we do these things when everything in our flesh wants to do the opposite? Well, the secret is found in verse 13. I'm going to start in verse 12, the end of verse 12 into verse 13. He says this, work out your own salvation, your own salvation, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his 
good pleasure. What an interesting way to round out this command. Paul is saying, you, you, work out your salvation. Work hard, strenuously, continuously, persistently to the end. You work hard. Work out your salvation. Work in your sanctification. You work hard. And then the very next verse. For it is God who works in you. Well, come on, Paul. Which one is it? I I told my community, I could just imagine Paul writing this going, figure this one out. You work hard. For it is God who works in you. How does that work? Let me give you an illustration I think is helpful. It's helpful for me. I am a purchaser of old bikes. I don't believe in spending a bunch of money. I just spend five bucks and use it till it dies. And so on a couple of different occasions, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, one of the pedals will just fall off, right? Like it's just old and it just falls off. And so I will try to pedal with one foot. Has anyone done this besides me? Anyone? Okay, there are a few weirdos out there. And so you'll try to pedal with one foot and you'll kind of go, right? And it's like this, and you can do that for a little bit, right? But not for long. You see, on the bicycle of sanctification, there are two pedals. That wasn't supposed to be funny. (laughs) On the bicycle of sanctification, there are two pedals. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is one pedal. For it is God who works in you, which is the other pedal. And if you get rid of either of those pedals, it doesn't go well. If you get rid of God's working in you, and you determine to just do everything on your own effort and work out your salvation with fear and trembling on your own effort, You'll be dismayed. You'll be discouraged. You'll be defeated because you know you cannot do it. You know the sin that you have been battling for years upon years. But if you get rid of the other pedal, if you say, you know what, I'm just going to let go and let God. I'm going to to let God take care of it. And I'm not going to do anything. Well, then we're prone to laziness, which is also condemned by God. And so what we see is that sanctification is two pedals to a bike. And you need both. You need God to be at work in you that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see, the only reason God can call us to pursue holiness is because he is at work in us. If God was not at work in us, then his calling on us to pursue holiness would be completely in vain. It would be like trying to turn on a car that has no battery. But the good news is, is that because, and this is what I want to end with, because God is at work in you, every effort, every effort you make towards holiness counts. Because God is at work in you, every effort you make towards faithfulness, towards working out your salvation, counts. But only because God is at work in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your efforts are not in vain? Because God is at work in you. We are to work out 
our salvation. How? With fear and trembling. With what power? For it is God who works in you. Why? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that as we go forth to work out our salvation, that we do not go alone, but that you are at work in us. That is the pedal of the bike that never falls off. We praise you, God, that you never stop working on us, that you never abandon us, that you never get up on, give up on us, no matter how far we have strayed away from you, God. You never give up on your children, and that is such good news that we need to know, Lord. Lord, I pray for all of us, God, whether we, whether we pedal more with one of the pedals than the other, Lord, whether we depend so much on our strength and our abilities that we forget that you are at work, or whether we depend so much on you that we cease to even be active in our sanctification, God. Pray that you would correct us today, Lord, and that our hope would be in you, that we would grow in grace, sitting in the glory of Christ, who humbled him to the point of death, the death on the cross, and now is exalted above every name. May we do it for him, for his sake, for his glory, and for your pleasure. Lord, as we turn to your table, and we were reminded that Christ went to the slaughter like a sheep, silent, like a lamb, not complaining, not arguing, but he went and unjustly was sentenced to death, God. May we come humbly, Lord, Remembering that we need Jesus in us. Just as we take in this bread and this wine, God, we need Christ in us. Otherwise, our pursuit is in vain, Lord. Lord, take these elements and set them apart, God. Let them not just be bread and wine for us, God, but let them be the body and blood of Christ. May you spiritually nourish us, Lord, to carry out this great command to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.